Hello, welcome to the Dissident Daughters podcast. This is Ada and I'm back. <laughs> I know in the last episode I said um, that I that, that was it for the year, that I was taking a break for December and I wasn't going to record any more episodes, but I changed my mind and I can do that because it's my podcast. <laughs> so... Ever since I recorded and edited that last episode, I have not been able to stop thinking about it. Okay, so let me give you just like a little bit of like behind the scenes um, look. First of all, I I recorded that full episode twice. Okay, and then I took pieces of each one and I edited it down so much. I probably took out half. I probably only ended up with about 50% of what I had actually said and recorded, like to the point where it barely had any substance to it because I was so worried about making sure that it was worded correctly, that it was gentle enough, that it was careful enough, that it could potentially be shared with believing family and friends. And, you know, maybe, um, maybe I achieved that goal in some way and, and maybe I didn't, but ever since then, I've been kind of mad about it, to be honest. Like I've been frustrated and I've been angry and my feelings have been like, damn, I am so sick and tired of censoring myself. I want to just say the fucking things without having to apologize. And, you know, I thought that it would make me feel good to like say the things as nicely as possible to, um, you know, kind of like extend a a hand and, and build a bridge across to my believing family and friends. And it just didn't make me feel that. Um, if it made you feel that and you, if you listened to it and you liked it and it was helpful in some way, that is so great. And I'm really glad, but also if you listen to it and you were just incredibly frustrated by it, I understand, like I totally get it. And there was definitely like a part of me that was just like, uh, I don't want to censor what I want to say. Like I, I just want to say what I actually want to say to believing people Of course, I will never actually be able to, you know, say this stuff because it's too harsh for them to handle. And of course, this episode is not for your family and friends. (laughs) But I have so many things (laughs) that I actually want to say unfiltered. Okay, I had a conversation with my mom, which is sort of ironic, you know, given that I had just recorded that episode. Um, But like a few days after that, I had a conversation with my mom and it was a quite lengthy conversation with just her and I, we went out to dinner and I want to say we, it was at least two hours long, maybe more than that. I don't know. I wasn't paying attention at the time, but it was a nice little conversation and it got very, um, we got into the weeds a little bit and we definitely like brought up and I brought up a lot of issues that I had with the church. And we did it in a way though, like my mom, I think I said this in my last episode, like my mom has been really great. And, um, there was, there was a conversation that we had, I don't know, like a year and a half ago or so where I brought up a lot of the issues with Joseph Smith. 
And my mom, and I think I already mentioned this in an earlier episode, but I'll, I'll mention it again. My mom just simply kept making excuses for Joseph Smith. Okay. And everything I brought up, she just found a way to like completely discount what I was saying and, and like make it sound like it wasn't that bad. You know, she just, I don't know. She just found a way to, you know, to make an excuse about everything. So after that conversation that I had with my mom a year and a half ago, I was feeling like so frustrated and, and we had kind of a follow-up conversation where I said to her, mom, I cannot have you continually making excuses for Joseph Smith. You know, I, I first expressed to her that I was not happy about our last conversation. She's like, oh really? Why? Like, I thought it was great, you know, and, and she thought everything was fine. And clearly I did not because I walked away just being so frustrated by the excuses that she made for Joseph Smith. And so that's what I said to her. I just said, mom, you cannot keep making excuses for him. Just do not do that. Like I cannot handle the excuses that you make. Like if you look at Warren Jeffs and you think that his behavior is abhorrent, then why do you not think that Joseph Smith's behavior is abhorrent, right? Like how, how do you give special pleading to Joseph Smith and the things he did but like you would never do that for anyone else, right? So anyways, we had that conversation. She said, okay, I understand. And and you know what? She hasn't since then. She, whenever it's come up, she just, you know, she listens and she, she's been really good about it. But we got into a pretty lengthy conversation about some of the things that I, you know, think about when it comes to the church and what kinds of things kind of make me upset. And it's funny because I think that my mom just... My mom is like what you would describe as like a cafeteria Mormon, even though you would also describe her as fully believing and like fully faithful, whatever, like true believing Mormon. But she's also very much a cafeteria Mormon because she picks and chooses the doctrines that she accepts and believes in and that she wants to, you know, have part of her life. Like, for instance, she is a single woman. She was divorced from my dad and she canceled their ceiling. And that was only like a lot of years after, probably close to 20 years after they got divorced, my mom finally had her ceiling canceled, but she's never been married to someone else. So like when I bring up, so mom, you know, what do you think is going to happen in the afterlife? Like the, the doctrine says, and the prophets have said that you will be assigned to a man. And she's like, not assigned, you know, like I get to choose whoever I want. And then I said, well, you know, you'll probably be like his fourth or fifth wife, right? You're cool with that. And she just like, she's just like, oh no. Like, like she basically like has this fairy tale version of the church in her mind that she believes is real. And like, by the end of our conversation, I genuinely was like, wow, mom, I want to join your church because you've basically like picked and chosen all the beautiful aspects of Mormonism, or at least the things that she thinks are beautiful in Mormonism. And she has completely rejected all of the things that don't sit well with her or that make her uncomfortable, um, i.e. polygamy, right? So polygamy is a huge one. And I think like she is, you know, perfectly fine just accepting that, you know, God's going to make everything right in the end. You know, God's going to make sure that, that I'm happy. And And so anyways, and we talked about um, (laughs) becoming invisible as a heavenly mother. Like, why is this our highest aspiration to get to heaven and become gods 
And do you know that as a heavenly mother, you disappear? And she's like, uh, <laughs> like it kind of made her feel a little awkward, but she didn't really have an answer for that. And it was almost like she was just kind of dismissing it. And um, I mentioned the talk by Elder Renland in last April's conference where he told us that we shouldn't ask about Heavenly Mother and that we shouldn't speculate her about her and that it was arrogant to demand answers about her. She didn't even know about this talk, you guys. How do I know more about her religion than she does? How am I paying more attention to what's happening in the church than she is? And like, I genuinely think she's just like in denial. She avoids learning or listening to things that are hard or that make her feel uncomfortable at all. And so anyways, that kind of added to like all of my thoughts and ideas of like, what do I actually want to say? And of course, you know, when I'm with my mom, I'm really trying to like say things in the kindest way possible because I do want to be respectful. I, I don't want to be a huge jerk to her, but I also like want to make her think and like point out the problems so that it might like stop her from just like being so much in a fairy tale world, I guess. So yeah, so so I have so many questions or so many things that I, you know, in an unfiltered way would actually want to ask my believing family and friends. And one of them is like, how the hell do you justify the terrible actions of the past and present leaders? When there is um, this argument, whenever, you know, you bring up something about, you know, mistakes that the past or present leaders have been making, I want to scream when somebody brings up the fact that, you know, they're human and, you know, they are, they are fallible and blah, blah, blah. I'm sorry, but that is a terrible excuse for being a horrible person. No one has ever in the history of ever said that they expect the leaders of the church to be perfect. And so when somebody tries to just say they're human, they're doing the best they can, they're fallible, blah, blah, blah. I just want to shake them and be like, you're an idiot. Tell me what is the standard that we hold them to then? If they are just human, do they even have to live up to the standard decency and honesty that the rest of us are expected to have? Um, because I think that we aren't even doing that. If they are claiming to speak for God, they should be held to a ha higher standard than the average schmo who just says, I'm an average schmo. <laughs> if I'm just a regular person I am not claiming to have all the truth, right? I am not claiming to speak for God. Then, you know, that's different than somebody who says, we lead God's one true church. We have God's power on the earth, the priesthood, and we speak for God. Okay. So that's one question I want people to genuinely answer for me. What is the threshold? What is the standard that we can hold them to? Because it really seems like we aren't holding them to any standard anymore, right? And um, the comment of, um, or the teaching where much is given, much is required. They are given a massive amount of responsibility and power in the church. And we literally expect nothing of them. Like, it's ridiculous. Um, they aren't even good people. How are we making them our leaders, and when I say that, I mean, I know that we 
aren't doing anything. We have no say whatsoever. Uh, which brings me to, you know, I don't know if you guys have watched the Mormonism Live episode with Nemo or uh, Nemo the Mormon's episode on YouTube about um, him opposing the, the sustaining vote for the leaders of the church. But if you haven't listened to it, you got to go check it out. It is so good. It is so, so good. And it's crazy eye opening. So basically the whole thing, and I'll just give you like a little synopsis or summary of of the story nemo lives in the uk and he he is so articulate and so smart and he just his if you don't follow him on social media or on youtube you really should be because i just love what he what he says and and you know his his knowledge is beyond belief he has all these videos where he debunks things that the church leaders have said and they are so good. He kind of breaks down like the issues in a really like interesting way and a really knowledgeable way and a way that like makes it super easy to understand and make sense. But essentially, he opposed voting, you know, in favor of sustaining the prophet and the leaders of the church in his state conference. And then he went about, you know, making taking the steps to you know, have the leaders know about his, his opposing vote. And essentially he, he was opposing their uh, sustaining because he did not believe that they were honest. And he wrote a letter to them specifically to Dallin Oaks. And his main question was this, it's what is to be done by a member of the church if they have cause to oppose the sustaining of senior church leadership and the factual basis of their opposition cannot be resolved by local leadership. Okay, so that was his main question. And the church basically said, oh, you know, you need to meet with your state president and present the information to him. And then the state president would forward that information to the office of the first presidency. And then I thought this part was really interesting. It says once one does that, his or her obligation and the obligation of the state president are fulfilled. I think they add in that part to say, "Okay, you did your part. Now walk away and drop it. And no more can be said or done about it. And then from there, the information will be carefully investigated and appropriate action will be taken based on the evidence presented and the investigation of the facts. OK, so that's what the secretary to the first presidency told him. OK, so <laughs> so then he goes on and he writes this letter and he spells out all the reasons why he opposes the sustaining of them and he gives this whole overview and he and he cites all the evidences and he provides links and he shows a very clear and repeated pattern of dishonest behavior among the top leadership of the church and let me give you a couple of examples that he uses in his in his story or in his in his letter he says Dallin H. Oaks did not speak truthfully at a University of Virginia Q&A session in 2021 when he said, let me say about electroshock treatments at BYU. When I became president at BYU, that had been discontinued earlier and it never went on under my administration. Okay, so that was later. That statement was later proven to be false. Um, and he provides all of the you know documentation and information to show that. Then his 
His second one was Jeffrey R. Holland said in 2012 at a Harvard Q&A, he says, institutionally, not a single dollar, not one red cent of money from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints went into Proposition 8 or any other comparable proposition that I know of. And then he goes on to show why that statement is completely um, false. Uh, It is so blatantly dishonest. And he even spells out like down to the penny all the money that was spent by the church, um, how, you know, a presidency of the 70 were um, reimbursed for travel back and forth to California from Utah in support of Proposition 8. I mean, it was just ridiculous. Like the, the list goes on and on of all the ways that that statement was so, so, so false. Okay. Then on his, his number three issue was M. Russell Ballard in 2017 at a face-to-face event said there has been no attempt on the part of the church leaders to try to hide anything from anybody. And this statement is so ridiculous. He goes on to talk about the Wilford Woodruff's journal that they have where they basically redact like huge sections of it talking about the second anointing. Why are they redacting documents if not to hide things? Like a transcript of the original text confirms that the redacted parts are indeed references to the second anointing. It's also untrue, uh, that statement, because um, he's holding up a 1970 Improvement Era article to try and say that multiple accounts of the first vision were never hidden. Okay, let's talk about how obscure this Improvement Era article is from 1970. They never taught this in any way, and he's he's claiming that they didn't hide it because it was in some obscure article somewhere. And then another example is, you know, Joseph Fielding Smith hiding um, the uh, the first account of the first vision, you know, ripping it out of the uh, the journal and hiding it in a vault somewhere for years and years and years on end. I mean, it is so crazy the number of things like you can easily come up with to show examples of that statement by M. Russell Ballard being a lie. Okay. So then he kind of summarizes by that, by saying, if they are simply imperfect men, why do they refuse to apologize or admit fault? And if they speak for God, why are they dishonest? Okay. And then he goes on and he talks about Russell Nelson's plane of death story. He talks about how, um, this is a quote from uh, Russell and Nelson in, 2019, he says, prophets are rarely popular, but we will always teach the truth, (laughs) which is such a crazy quote, because then Nemo goes on to point out all the examples of when they haven't taught the truth, like the Adam God theory that Brigham Young taught and how later Spencer Kimball disavowed that teaching. And he basically, he, he says We denounce that theory and hope that everyone will be cautioned against this and other kinds of false doctrine. So President Kimball said that Brigham Young taught false doctrine. Okay, Uh, Brigham Young also taught the doctrine of blood atonement, which was later disavowed. And, um, you know, in uh, June of 2010, there was a statement where they talked about. Well, I'll just read the statement. It says in the mid 19th century, when rhetorical, emotional oratory was common, some church members and leaders used strong language that included notions of people making restitution for their sins by giving up their own lives. However, so-called blood atonement by which individuals would be required to shed their own blood to pay for their sins is not a doctrine of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We believe in and teach the 
the infinite and all-encompassing atonement of Jesus Christ, which makes forgiveness of sin and salvation possible for all people. Again, the church in the modern day has declared a teaching of doctrine by a past prophet, prophet to not be a doctrine of the church. Okay, and he 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 tells a bunch of other things, but there there's one part that I think is so interesting. Okay, there's a quote um, in Doctrine and Covenants twenty six that says, "In the restored church, doctrine is not canonized until the body of the church has received it by the law of common consent." That principle was revealed in 1830 and has been applied since that time, okay? This was a quote given by Dallin Oaks in the Enzyme in March 2020. So he shares that scripture and then he says that principle was revealed in 1830 and has been applied since that time. Okay, that is a complete lie. <laughs> Listed under the basic doctrines in the New Testament Seminary Manual, it says, quote, the plan of salvation includes the creation, the fall, the atonement of Jesus Christ, and all the laws, ordinances, and doctrines of the gospel. So any change to the performance of ordinances would constitute a change to the doctrines of the church based on that statement, right? Which should then be received and canonized by the body of the church by a sustaining vote. The last time that that actually happened was in 1978 when they put an end to the racial segregation of salvation is the way Nemo puts it. But in, you know, more basic terms and what I usually call it is just the end of the, the ban of um, priesthood blessings to anyone of African descent or anyone with any people of color. So since then, there have been instances of changes to the ordinances and therefore to the doctrines of the church, as described above in that last quote, um, particularly in the endowment. So in the 90s, they removed the penalties and in 2019, they made fundamental changes um, about the wording and how women make covenants with God instead of covenanting to obey their husband, right? This is so crazy. And then the First Presidency, like, makes those changes sound like, you know, they're just slight adjustments and just small details. But this completely contradicts what earlier prophets said, which... Um, and especially Joseph Smith, who said that the ordinances instituted in the temple uh, were instituted in heaven before the foundation of the world in the priesthood for the salvation of men and are not to be altered or changed. All must be saved on the same principles. This was a quote by Joseph Smith. Okay, so they, they just contradict each other so much. Okay, here's another one that Nemo talks about. In June of 2019, M. Russell Ballard said, some missionaries have felt pressure to invite people to be baptized during the first lesson or even the first contact. These missionaries have felt that inviting people to be baptized the very first time they meet them demonstrated the missionary's faith and supports their thinking that inviting people to be baptized early is what is expected, he said. Other missionaries have felt that an invitation to be baptized early allowed them to promptly separate the wheat from the tares. In this case, some see the baptismal invitation as a sifting tools. Church leaders don't know where these practices began. <laughs> Elder Ballard knows exactly where this practice began because he was responsible for creating Preach My Gospel, which teaches missionaries to invite people to be baptized on the first lesson. So let's talk about how blatant these lies are. Okay, They are so incredibly blatant. They're just so, 
it just it's so maddening to me that they find a way to try and say that they haven't done any of these things and they will not take responsibility for it. They will not fix it. So this is like when I listened to that episode with Nemo and I when I read the document, which is so great, and I've just shared a bunch of it with you, I really wish that I could share that with my believing family and friends because it is so it's so blatantly obvious that they have made such huge mistakes. And I just really, I would love to share that with my mom and see what her answer would be. And, you know, it would probably be like, well, you know, you're getting caught up in all these little nitpicky things. I can just hear my mom saying that right now and it would just piss me off. But, okay, that's my next question. Like, why do you give so many allowances for the brethren, past and present? And why is it okay for them to blatantly lie to deceive, to hide things. And what is what is the actual standard for them? Okay, that's one question. Another question I have is how do you justify the money? How do you not see like the hoarding and stockpiling of cash as a complete rejection of everything that Jesus taught? How do you not see the irony in the great and spacious buildings? When I look at the conference center, I see a great and spacious building. When I look at any temple ever built, I see a great and spacious building. And again, why is the church not held to the same standard as the rest of us as it, um, as it pertains to tithing? So we're supposed to give 10% of our income to tithing, but they give less than 1% of the money that they bring in to charity. How is that okay? How do members make this okay in their minds? Like, what's the explanation? I really, really, really want to know. I want to know how they justify that, how they reconcile it, how they say that's okay. Okay. Another question I have is how, well, okay, I'm going to go back. My mom asked me the question of whether I believe in Jesus and God during this conversation that we had. And my answer to her was no. And she was shocked and she did not um, appreciate it. That was pretty upsetting to her. What I told her is that it gives me more peace to believe that everything is random than to believe that there is a God orchestrating this entire shit show on earth. And I said this straight up. I said, if someone is in charge of all this, they are failing miserable. They are literally failing in the biggest possible way. It's insane to me that anyone could believe that God is doing any of this on purpose. And of course, you know, her answer is, oh, but, you know, we have free agency and we did all of this to the earth, not God and blah, 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 blah. And I'm just like, but why would God not care about all the suffering? She's like, oh, but he does, but he allows people to have agency. Well, how is starving people born into poverty given any agency over their circumstances? And yet he'll help you find your keys? Like, and she laughed at that one, by the way. She thought I was funny. I wasn't being funny. I was being dead serious. (laughs) And then she's like, how can you not believe in Jesus? There's proof that he existed. And I said, mom, There's proof that someone existed. His name wasn't even Jesus. You know, 
that's fine. I, you know, I can read, you know, the teachings that he supposedly taught, which are written in the Bible and claim to be Jesus's teachings, which I, you know, I'm not sure I believe, but okay. He had great teachings. Did he die for my sins? No, he didn't. Did he atone and make it so that I can go to heaven someday? No, because the entire plan of salvation that supposedly God created sucks. That plan sucks. And any like actual God or deity that is all knowing and are all powerful and all loving wouldn't create a plan that right off the bat shuts out a third of his children and has a, you know, a one true religion that comes about, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of years after people have been living on the earth with no knowledge of this so-called one true religion. I mean, we talked about the le- the delegitimizing of other people's religions and their spiritual experience. And she really does think that we are special, that we are more special than the rest of the world. She, you know, she'll, she'll say things like, but I've never found another religion that teaches as much truth as this one does. And I'm like, have you really tried? And also it's not that I'm trying to say that anyone else's religion is true, but when you say that we're the only true religion, you delegitimize everyone else's. And, you know, I said other people in other religions, they have spiritual experiences. They feel the spirit the same as you do. And she was like, well, but they don't have all the truth, right? They have some truth and there's plenty of good in the world and blah, 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 blah. And I just don't, I do not get how people can reconcile that because essentially their belief is that they are the only ones that have the truth. They are the only ones that have the gift of the Holy Ghost. They are the only ones that have the proper priesthood authority. And how does any of those statements or beliefs not delegitimize every other person's religion on earth and every other person's spiritual experience on earth? She made a comment that she believes this isn't the end of the story and basically that she's still holding out hope for me to come back and believe in Jesus and God and and maybe even the gospel, whatever. And that, you know, this isn't the end of the story and there's always hope and And um, she says, I hope that doesn't offend you. And I said, well, I hope you aren't offended by me holding out hope that you'll wake up and come around to the truth someday too. (laughs) And I kind of laughed. Like we had kind of a lighthearted banter between us this whole time. And I do think that I made her think. And I do think that I made her, um, look at things in a little bit different way. Um, but at the end of our conversation, I mean, we were both, I was kind throughout the whole thing and, um, we gave each other a hug and my mom said, well, you haven't changed my mind. And, and I'm like, okay, I wasn't trying to, I was just, you know, and I'm like, you haven't changed my mind either. Like we're both good. Like it's just so bizarre to me. And then a couple days later, she actually texted me and asked me, what was that talk about Heavenly Mother that you mentioned? So she was going to go and read the talk. And I was like, sweet. So I gave it to her and um, I haven't heard back from her since then. But I do, I hope that I'm like planting seeds in little ways. Um, And I know not everybody can have these types of conversations 
with their mom. I know that, you know, maybe some of you might be shocked that I even said any of this to her because, because I think for people who are super black and white thinking, who are super TBM, they might really get offended by all of these things. But my mom actually took it all really well and it was a really good conversation. But do you guys ever have the thing where like after you have a conversation, you maybe think about it over and over and over again and kind of like replay it in your mind and you think of all the things you should have said? That's definitely me. Like I am happy about the things I did say, but there's more that I wish I would have said when I, you know, it was like, oh, I had this perfect opportunity, you know, of her sitting right in front of me and having the conversation. And I really wish that I could because we, you know, her and I did not talk about the money. We did not talk about like the temple stuff. Um, I did say, ooh, here's another part I just remembered. Um, so my mom said, well, what if the day comes when one of your kids wants to join the church or wants to come back to the church? Don't you think that you should allow them to do that? And I stopped for a minute and I was like, oof, that would actually be really hard for me. Like, I'm not going to lie. I'll be totally honest. Like, that would be really difficult for me to be okay with. And then I sat with it for a minute and I said, okay, um, actually I would be fine with it, but I would make sure that they had, that they were completely informed and that they knew all of the things that I know. And I genuinely, I don't say this to be a brat, but like if my kids know what I know, they're not going back to the church. They're not, it's just not going to happen. And I said, when you have actual informed consent about what you're covenanting to and what the church, you know, you know, when you know the honest truth about some of this stuff, like I, I'm not afraid that my kids are going to go back to the church because if they know all the things, then they won't go back. And, and if they do, if they do find a way to do it, it's going to be in an incredibly nuanced way of like, I don't know. I just, I don't even know how it would be possible, but maybe it is. Um, if you have a totally different frame of mind about it, because, you know, my youngest, she barely grew up in the church, so she hardly knows anything. And so for her to come from a different perspective and be taught the gospel and then to be kind of like inoculated by the things that I say, meaning like, you know, she would learn the truth from the beginning and she wouldn't have that, that, you know, that revelation down the road that she'd been deceived the whole time, you know, then it might be totally different. Um, and that kind of brought us into talking about the temple and how when you go to the temple, you have no idea what is coming and what is happening. And you have no idea what you're going to be covenanting to because you're not allowed to talk about it. And I said, so you are essentially making covenants under duress and you're, you're surrounded by your family and friends and they're all there supporting you. So how could you, you know, how could somebody possibly be expected to say, no, I'm not going to make this covenant. So you make the covenant feeling forced to make whatever covenant they, you know, throw at you. And, um, I said, you know, the temple was not, was not a safe and healthy place for me. And, you know, and I said, weren't you completely freaked out by the temple the first time you went? And, and she kind of just like, I, she kind of agreed. She kind of was like, yeah, but then she like changed the subject really quickly. Like, it's like, she doesn't really want to sit with it. 
She doesn't want to think about the hard things. And I think Mormons are so good at this. They're so good at just like thought stopping and shutting down their, um, like the negative thoughts, the negative feelings that they have. Like they're so, so, so good at it. And I know this because I was good at it. Like I did it too. And unfortunately it's just something that we're taught to do. And we just, we brainwash ourselves essentially. So anyways, so I wanted to come back on and those are some, those are like the top five basic things that I want, that I really want to talk to a believing person about, that I really want to get answers about how they can possibly reconcile these things and how they can possibly justify the things that the church does and has done. And, you know, going all the way back to Joseph Smith. And I I said in the beginning how, you know, I told my mom not to make excuses for him. And in this most recent conversation, she basically said, you know, I think Joseph was, he had a job to do and that was to restore the church and translate the Book of Mormon. And, um, the rest of the stuff he did, you know, maybe wasn't, wasn't right. And, and so like, therefore she's not holding him to any standard either. Right. And I was like, mom, I said this at one point, which I was really proud of myself about. And I don't know exactly how I said it, but essentially she was like trying to give me all these, you know, excuses and explanations about different things in the church. And I said, mom, the statement that takes the least amount of conjecture to believe is that Joseph made it all up (laughs) and all the other things like it takes so much mental gymnastics to try and make it fit and to try to make it make sense that I think the most logical thing to do is to conclude the thing that takes the least amount of conjecture, the least amount of mental gymnastics, the least amount of explanations or, you know, uh, excuses or justifications. It is that Joseph made it all up. And that's just the bottom line. And, um, you know, my mom wasn't upset by that, but she, you know, she kind of laughed and kind of changes the subject. And it's, it's like these statements by me, they just hit a brick wall because she really does have a brick wall built up around her testimony and there's no penetrating it. There's no piercing it. And that's okay. That's okay too, because I think, well, you know, she's happy in her fairy tale land. She, it makes her feel good about herself that she's better than everyone else. And she has the truth. (laughs) And I love my mom. Um, but it's hard. It is really hard. So I guess I, I wanted to record this because I guess because it's the, it's the real deal. It's like, yeah, there are like, there are times when I want to be kind and careful and gentle and and build the bridges. And then there are times where I just want to say fuck it to all of the things and where I just want to rage about the problems I have with the church. And maybe, you know, the fact that I kind of show all sides of it helps you to feel like, hey, it's okay to have all the, you know, to have the pendulum swinging back and forth in all the directions and to feel all the feelings and to go back and forth between them. And you know, just when you think like you've healed a whole bunch and you've made strides and, and you've, you've come a long ways, 
um, in your deconstruction or in your faith crisis healing, um, something happens that can like send you right back to those early stages of grief and pain and suffering and anger and all the things. And I think we just have to be okay with that. This is a process and it's not a linear process. I'm up and down and back and forth and I'm all over the place. And so if you are too, just know that you're not alone and that I think it's totally normal and um, I embrace it and I accept it as it is. I've had um, holiday seasons in the past where Christmas was super triggering for me, where, you know, talking about Jesus and all the things was like pretty upsetting to me. But this season, I haven't felt any of that. And my mom actually asked, well, why are you celebrating Christmas then if you don't even believe that he's our savior? And I'm like, well, I'm just celebrating Christmas because it's a cultural and societal thing that we all do. And and the joy that I get out of it is being with my family and friends and giving people gifts and, you know, just loving people. It's all about love for me. I don't give a crap what Jesus did. Um, whatever, you know, and that's really hard for believing people to understand. It really is. And when I was in the church, that's part of why Christmases were hard after I left, because I really like, I tried to make every Christmas like Christ centered. And I always like bought all the books and we did all the activities and we read all the scriptures and we just did all the things to really make it Jesus centered. And now it's just like, you know what, we get to, you know, buy gifts and decorate the house and have a good time together and eat, drink and be merry and love each other. And, and it can still be a beautiful thing and you can create your own traditions around however you want to celebrate. And there's nothing wrong with it. I don't have to justify why I celebrate Christmas to my mom because I don't believe in Jesus. Like, I think that's bullcrap because Christmas isn't, it didn't even, you know, become a thing because of Jesus anyways. That was just kind of like a way that they stole you know, pagan rituals from (laughs) ancient anyways, it, I could go on and on, but I just want you guys to know, uh, that I've been thinking a lot about this and I had to come back and say some of the things that I really just wanted to say uncensored, unfiltered and all the things. So I appreciate you listening. I appreciate all of your love and support. Um, I always really appreciate you sharing my podcast with other people and uh, any donations that I receive are super um, appreciated and I'm super grateful for it. And who knows, um, maybe I won't take the month off. You know what? I'm just, I'm just doing whatever I'm doing on any given day that makes me happy. And so if that means I'm going to do another episode um, this year, then I'm going to do another episode. And if I don't get around to it and I don't have time to do it, another one, then that's going to be fine too. So (laughs) I apologize that I can't give you a more definitive answer about anything. (laughs) This is just my reality now. So I love you all. Thanks for letting me come back and just vent all of the thoughts that I've been having since the last episode. I appreciate it. I love you all and take care. We'll see you.